All right, all right, all right. I am so happy to be back, ladies and gentlemen. You know, when I travel around the world, when I connect with incredible people, it's always difficult to identify those outstanding individuals in the world, those awesome human beings that I just want to make sure the world that I am in gets to know. And every single time when we put together this awesome live session to all of you on social media, and of course, everyone who's going to be listening to this on the Collective Genius Code podcast, I'm always looking for people who are truly changing the world. Those change makers that are making a difference as we speak, the change makers that have had to go through a massive change themselves. And today, I'm really honored to invite someone who's been there and done that, really. So first of all, I love that he was raised in Canada because I was also raised in Canada. So we got that thing in common, which is cool. He was born in South Africa and it's one of my favorite places in the world. He has spent over 20 years of his awesome life, not only coaching and speaking, but buying and selling businesses in a number of different industries from wireless networking to event management, to data capturing uh, businesses, even being super active in the world of Hollywood, working on incredible movies that I think we've all seen and loved, like Avatar, like the Pirates of the Caribbean, Transformers, and even Iron Man. So I want to know a lot more about that. Ladies and gentlemen, this man is an incredible photographer. He created the Wild Fit um, program that one of the best-selling programs on Mind Valley's on Mind Valley's platform, and on a regular basis. I've seen him transform audiences just with his magic uh, abilities. I initially met Eric on the uh, stages of uh, Tony Robbins. Both of us were very active in those events and very, very quickly I fell in love with his energy and the passion and the content that he's constantly sharing with the world and how he's making a difference. Eric, I'm really happy to have you on board with us today. Thank you so much for coming all the way from the other side of the world. <laughs> I'm really glad to be here. I'm really glad that we can do this kind of thing and not rack up a ton of air miles. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. So for me, it's been an absolute blessing uh, to be stuck here in Bali with my family during COVID. Can you, I always like to start with something a little bit out there. Tell me why COVID has been a blessing for you. You know, uh, it's really, it, 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 there's so many levels. Um, I, it really uh, dialed me into some things that I needed to think about, about the way we uh, interact with clients, you know, that we were so dependent upon live events all the time. And it just forced us to rethink some of those things. And on a personal basis, it made me reassess a lot about the way I was living. And that's, I'm very excited about uh, the changes that I've made in that area. And and, um, and, you know, also, I think on a global level, uh, COVID gives us two really big opportunities. The one is to truly measure the impact of humans sitting at home for a couple of months and not damaging the environment. And it gives us a chance to see that because I think that that's, a, 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 that's going to be one of the, you know, obviously biggest topics in the world for the next 30 years. So we'll have some actual data. If everybody stays home for a while and doesn't pollute, what happens? And then, of course, lastly, for me, a very big one, of course, because of my passion for nutrition and health and, and, and food psychology is I think that people are finally getting the wake up call that they need about metabolic health and about their relationship with food. If, if one thing has really come out about COVID, it's like, wow, your health is actually really important, more important than we ever thought before. Nice. I love that. So I, it's very exciting to always hear people's completely different perspectives on how COVID has been some sort of gift to, to, to them. And 
I, I like hearing yours. It's very much aligned and resonates with me as well. So Eric, I know like many of us, your journey has been long, it's been adventurous, it's been bumpy. Can you give us the way that you got into the health industry? Because you've been an entrepreneur, you've been a speaker, you've been a coach, you've been a business owner. How did you get to this position where you're like a health guru in the world, helping people understand how to make their bodies healthy and their business healthy at the same time? Well, I might question the word guru, but you know, I, 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 I guess I, I said that because I think <laughs> that you are, I know to my wife, you completely are. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you know, for me, it's uh, it's an interesting thing. I, I was in a position when I, when I left school that I really uh, wasn't able to go to university. It just wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't an option for me. There were financial reasons and other things. It just, it just wasn't, you know, I wasn't living in Sweden where universities were free. And, um, and so what happened in my case was I just jumped off into the workforce and, and I was quite entrepreneurial in nature. And I started learning about sales and, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. But at the same time I was suffering and I was, I'd been sick for a very long time and I was in pain and I'd been visiting doctors and specialists and they'd been prescribing all kinds of different medications, creams and pills and injections and finally surgery. And, and then some friends of mine sat me down, introduced me to Tony Robbins for the first time. And we had a conversation about food. And this is 1991. And 30 days later, I'd lost 35 pounds or, you know, 15-ish kilograms. Uh, all of my symptoms were gone. My acne was gone. My, my, my stomach cramps were gone. My headaches. I mean, it was like I was a whole new person. And that stimulated in me a very strong um, indignation about the medical industry and a really strong curiosity about the food industry. And what I mean by indignation about the medical industry, I was like, it was this easy? I mean, it was this easy to fix these problems I've been living with for almost a decade. And instead you were prescribing me, you're a salesperson for pharma. Now, listen, I'm not anti-doctors by any stretch of the imagination, because at that stage I was a kid and I was 21 years old. And of course, I, my first response was sort of anger and indignation. As I started digging in and finding out what was going on, I realized this was not the fault of doctors at all. It was the fault of a pharmaceutical uh, influenced medical education system where a doctor, and, and Gil, I'm sure you know this, but like a doctor can go through six, eight years of medical school and never study food. I don't understand. I don't understand how we allow that in society, but that's the way it is. And so that became a big thing for me. And so while I couldn't go to university and while I couldn't go get the sort of formal training in that place, I began an informal uh, education. I started reading everything I could read about food, around nutrition. Uh, then I started moving into evolutionary biology because of some family background. My grandfather was a famous archaeologist who found the oldest homo sapien skull in history. And, and so I, I was really interested in that stuff. And all of that stuff eventually converged with one more fascination I had. And that was this. Why don't people do the stuff they wish they would? I was really like fascinated by that because I saw it in my own life. But the fact is, when I was 18 years old, I didn't want to drink Coca-Cola anymore. And so I quit. And people around me like, you what? How did you do that? How did you stop? Like, and I realized that in my life, I was quite good at, at following through on what the higher me really wanted me to follow through on, but not always. And so I started studying what we now call behavioral change dynamics and said, like, how do we stimulate this in people, in business or in, in food? And that's where WildFit kind of, you know, we took this like nutritional information, evolutionary biology information, and then the information about how to actually stimulate change in people. And that's, that's where WildFit came from. And that's why it's so effective. I love it. You, you, you make it sound easy, 
Um, you, you, you make us really think about it. You gave a lot of food for thought when sharing this journey. Now, you went through a journey of some pain and you got into it because of pain. You wanted to fix this. You didn't trust the traditional medical industry. What about people out there these days, entrepreneurs, their business is suffering, all this media is telling them to wear masks, to take this, to take that. How does someone get things started when they want things fixed, their body, their business? What is that first simple steps that people can take that would actually maybe show them some results that they would believe in? Gil, it's such a great question. And I'm not even really sure I know the answer anymore. You know, if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have said, get online, start doing your research, you know, figure it out. You, you know, the, you, you should be paying as much attention to your health and food as possible. Same with money. Like, don't, don't hand that over to somebody else to manage. Don't let somebody else manage your money. Don't do that. You should learn about money. Learn how property works. Learn how the, how the stock market works and stuff. Because if you hand it over to somebody else, they will never care as much about your financial fortune as you will. Well, if that's true about money, tell me it's not true about health. I mean, honestly. Mm -hmm. But the trouble today is you go out on, uh, online to go do some research, and most of the research you'll find is paid for. It's, it's you know, what a lot of people don't realize is that there's this thing that we call at WildFit the battle of the plate. And the battle of the plate is not between you and your plate. The battle of the plate is between the wheat growers and the meat growers and the fruit growers and the sugar growers and the dairy farmers. They're all fighting like a giant game of risk for their share of your plate which means one day they release a study that talks about how good their food is. And the next day they release a study about how bad the other food is so they can have a share of their plate. And so, you know, no wonder people are confused. And then of course that's gorgeous because then they get, essentially they end up with cognitive dissonance and they just give in to the marketing and they just buy what's easy and they just buy what's convenient. And that's why we have an obesity epidemic, a type two diabetes epidemic, autoimmune disease exploding all over the place because we have a very disastrous and broken food system. So to answer the question, Neil, I would say, and maybe this is a little self-serving, but they should find somebody, maybe it's me, maybe it's Ted Nyman, maybe it's Professor Tim Noakes, maybe it's Dr. Arsene Malotra, like go find somebody who looks good, like they're doing the stuff and that they're living the, the stuff and that they are credible with the information they give you, that they give you sources for it, that, they, that you know, that, that it looks good and, and then go and study those people and then live the way they're living and, and things can be so different. I love that. You, you just said something that is so deep in my heart. Basically, there is no need to overstudy yourself. And I'm, I'm a huge believer that people make this obvious mistake all the time where they're like, okay, let me try it on my own. Instead of finding someone who's doing it and just modeling them and whether it's buying their programs or signing up to private coaching, like when COVID started, I'll be very honest with you, Eric, you know, I've, I know we've met a few times in the past and you always like were telling me like to try this stuff. And my wife completely got into your program and she was like, Gil, you got to do this program. It's amazing. I love it. But for me, it was always difficult to do such things online. And when COVID hit and we all got quarantined right away, I found a local trainer five days a week. He comes to my ass and he kicks my ass. And that, that's an investment. And I highly recommend everyone to make that investment in themselves. And of course, it's easier to start with online. The investment is not so big. And especially when it comes to someone like yourself that's worked with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people around the world, you know, it kind of, you've delivered enough results for enough people in the world to be certain that people will get results by 
even just they watch some of your free videos online, they'll see results right away. If they get to work with you, it's like you'll hold them by the hand to results. But tell me, what if it's not the person himself? What if like I'm in a position where I have a loved one in my life and that happens a lot around, and I want my loved one, like I'm thinking my wife wanted me in, you know, and she couldn't convince me. But especially now during COVID, where it's not about vaccinations or drugs, but keeping our immune system strong. It's about keeping our bodies strong so we can fight anything that comes in. What kind of advice can you give people to keep, to keep our loved ones healthy, to sign up to programs just like yours? We are very clear about this in, inside WildFit, that we are not interested in pushing. We are never interested in pushing. Uh, in fact, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they have this expression that Alcoholics Anonymous, to avoid controversy and all that other kind of stuff, one of the things they say is that they work on attraction rather than promotion. That's why you don't you won't see an ad for Alcoholics Anonymous. You might see a flyer at a at a at a bulletin board, but that's just to let you know where the meeting is. They're not advertising. Now, I'm not saying we don't do any advertising, but what I'm saying is, on a personal basis, look, the last thing we want is the. I'm sure you've met some people in your life that had a dogmatic or pedantic even attitude about their religion or their food, as though it was a religion. And so the trouble is, is that when somebody is like that, let's say that they have a particular food paradigm that they really believe in, then what happens is they become unpleasant. You know, they're like, oh, you've got to do it. You're doing it wrong. I can't believe you've got that on your plate. You're evil. And so none of those things create attraction. What they make you feel is I don't want to be like that person. And so the more you don't want to be like them, the more your mirror neurons reject them and there's no way you're going to adopt their ideas. So if you want to stimulate change in your loved ones, then there's really only one way that I know of to really do it. And that is to be the change you want to see in your loved ones. It's, it's you know, to lead by example, uh, to stimulate curiosity rather than behavior change. You see, a lot of people want to go straight to behavior change. Same with selling. They want to go straight to selling. But if you can trigger, if you can trigger curiosity first, then you earn the right to sell or you earn the right to educate. And so we, one of the things that I'm very proud of at WildFit is that there are people who do our program like for free all the time and don't pay us. And I'll tell you how they do it. Their husband signs up, they get to about week three or four, and then all of a sudden the wife's going, geez, this is really working. And they start watching the videos. We never get paid for that. And we love it. And it's not a problem. And, and we've even had people write to us and go, like just recently we had this one family, the woman wrote to us and said, well, I signed up for the program, but then my husband started doing it and my kids started doing it. Collectively, we've lost over hundred pounds. We no longer eat sugar, but I feel bad. We only bought one place. I'm like, it's all good. That's, that's, it's all good. Just go tell the world about it, but tell it to them in a leadership way. Tell it to them through attraction rather than promotion. And I think that's the best we can do. Gil, have you ever had somebody come to you and go, you got to read this book. You got to read this book. You got to read this book. Don't you eventually get to a point where you're like, I'm just not reading this book. <laughs> right? Course. Pushing stimulates resistance. Mm. I love that. Well, I got I to gotta come back to my wife and talk to her about that because I think she was actually doing that with me. And maybe there was some kind of a block in my head for not going after a video and wanting this personal activity with someone. Do you well, Gil, like I will tell you this. I will tell you this. Um, we, our business, we are um, uniquely talented is maybe a big claim, but I, I sort of sometimes feel we're uniquely talented at the way we construct our video training programs. So I know you're very familiar with, with WildFit or with Mindvalley, I should say. Well, bear in mind, I watched Vision, give Vision, the founder of, of Mindvalley, give an incredible talk in front of 
many of the top authors and speakers in the world at a private mastermind. And he explained the steps of transformation. And he explained them on this basis that prior to WildFit, they ran the traditional digital education model, the kind of model that you don't want to participate with, the kind where you buy a program and don't do it. And after Vision, he was, he, the way he tells the story, he was driving along in his car, listening to whatever program he was on. And all of a sudden he was on mine and it came on and said, hi, this is Eric Edmeads. Welcome to day 66 of the Wild Fit Challenge. And then Vision's like, I've never done anything for 66 days. What is Eric doing that's different? And so uh, what I would say to you is, is that um, from your own curiosity as an educator, from your own curiosity as a, as a guy who likes to stimulate masterminds and stuff like that, you should simply do it on that basis to see what it is that we do that makes each video make you want to watch the next one so you wake up on day 66 and it didn't take effort. One more way to put it to you. Have you ever read a book that pulled you through it? You couldn't put it down, right? But you've also read a book that you had to push your way through. You had to read it. Well, sure. the way we design our programs is they're the first kind. They pull you through. It doesn't take your effort to complete. Hmm. I love that. Beautifully said. Wow. So Eric, for those people who are listening live right now, those who are going to be listening in the next few days, health is an important part of, you know, everyday life. It's an important part, especially now during COVID time. Um, is there some sort of a breakdown to health that you believe that people should be more mindful of, like the eating habit, the breathing habit, the sleeping habit? How do you rank those? And how do people audit themselves? Like, how well am I doing right now? And what's the next level for me? You know, um, we, we do that. In fact, we, we've, we've got a masterclass that we taught on this called the eight physical needs of the body. And now we've got an immunity program that we're developing with Valley that's going to come out and walk people through these. But I'm going to give you a preview of it because I, I think it's incredibly important work. So um, the way we prioritize these things is based on their urgency. So if you think about it, like most people go, well, what do I need to eat to have stronger immunity or whatever? No, like, eating is so far down the list. Like we got to talk about that, no question about it. But what we first have to do is take a look at what are the activities in our lives that are suppressing our immune function, right? We have to figure those out. We got to get them out of the way. You know, for example, uh, um, allowing too much stress, freaking out about stuff that just isn't even on the way. Like I I'll give you a crazy example, but if you and I are walking along in the bush in Africa and we see a lion and it's half a mile away, do we need to have cortisol and adrenaline right now? No, we need to have logic. It's a half a mile away. We need to have logic. We have, we have time, it's half a mile away, might not be hungry, no need for us to be freaking out. But Gil, as you've, have you ever been walking along in the bush and seen a lion half a mile away? Well, I saw one closer, but as you said that, I was right away thinking, I'm gonna turn around and start walking in a different direction. Okay, but when you saw one closer, were you on foot? No, no, no. I was in a car. But I'm telling you, it's scared. a very different experience. It's a very, very different experience. Like, uh, you know, I, I have many times been walking along and there's a lion there. And I'm not talking half a mile away. I'm talking 200 meters away. And it's kind of scary, right? So here's what I'm trying to say, though, is that if the lion is 30 feet away, yeah, adrenaline and cortisol are probably a good idea. You need to move fast. You need strength. You need like, but if it's half a mile away, you need intelligence and logic. And adrenaline and cortisol diminish logical connection intelligence. They just, they just do. So in this time, what we want to do is recognize that mo there's a very big difference between fear and danger. There can be danger with no fear, and there can be fear without danger. 
So what we really only want to do is have fear when we really need to have it and there's actual danger. So for most of us, for example, COVID-19 is a danger, but it's so far removed and distant from immediately threatening us in a, in a given moment, like right this moment, that there's no need for cortisol, adrenaline, and stress chemical production right now, right? Mm. E e matter of fact, even if there's a sick person on the other side of the room and you're in real danger, it's, that's not what adrenaline was for. Adrenaline was for physical threats to your reality that you could use strength and speed to fight. So now most of us are using that adrenaline when we get a visa bill that we think is too big or we get fired from a job or something in business goes wrong or somebody yells at us in traffic or the news bombards us with how the world is going to hell in a handcart. And, and Gil, here's the deal. I mean, you know this. We're living in the safest times in the history of Earth. We really are. At your and my ages, if we were born, if you and I were born in 1900, we would already have survived World War I, the Spanish flu, the Great Depression, World War II, and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Like, holy crap, what have we lived through? Our ancestors, our, our grandparents are like, go fight in the trenches. We're like, go sit on your couch for two months. It's gonna be hell. I'm not diminishing the fact that the lockdown is incredibly difficult for many people and that COVID has been very, very difficult and lethal for some people. I'm not suggesting that that's not true. What I'm saying is that one of the very first things that we need to do to fight anything effectively is remain calm. As the, as the, Brits, as the Brits would tell us, keep calm and carry on. Mm. And so then we move to the physical needs. Once we've kind of recognized that, we move to the physical needs. And you asked how to calibrate them. Well, I, we can do it right now. The first physical need of the body is air. Well, specifically oxygen. And not just you know, breathing, because everybody goes, well, I don't need to be reminded of that. I'm breathing right now. Are you? Are you really? Because you see, most people breathe shallowly in the top part of their lungs. And that is what we refer to in WildFit as prey breathing. I don't mean like religious prey. I mean like prey animals breathe quietly because they don't want to get hunted. And so when we breathe delicately in the top of our lungs, it's like a nice way to just keep your cortisol level. I'm a prey animal. And we just do that unnaturally. Where, where, or we do it naturally, I should say. Whereas what we really want to do is make sure that three, four, five times a day, we have deep, deep lung filling breaths, like a predator, like, like, like we're not afraid. Like you're breathing like you're not worried about something. And I can tell you, Gil, when you walk around a corner and you see a lion, you don't do that. You, you see a lion, you don't go, you, you go and you breathe like prey. So what we want to do now is breathe like the entire environment around us is safe. So here's the question on a scale of one to 10, anybody listening on a scale of one to 10, where are you on the scale of good quality air and deep breathing every day? Where are you on that scale? If you're anything less than eight or nine, you have some practical steps you can take right now to get yourself healthier. And that is to breathe better quality air by being outside and also by doing deep breathing exercises that'll de-stress your body. Does it make sense? makes a hundred percent sense. And the reason I mentioned the food, breathing and sleeping, because breathing for me is something that actually something I've been challenged with in my life. Like I was never a good swimmer because I was not able to manage my breathing. I was never really a good runner because I was not able to manage my breathing. And it's only in the last year or so that I've actually taken some breathing classes how to manage my breathing to even have even more energy than I do right now. And it's something that, you know, for 
most of my life I thought, well, I'm breathing, <laughs> I'm breathing. But actually there's much better ways of breathing to increase our health and our energy in such beautiful ways. And it's something that we truly need to learn how to do. Yeah, no question, no question. And remember, the reason that we need to learn how to do it is that nature used to force us. It was very simple. In a normal day, our ancestors had to walk 15, 20 kilometers a day to collect food, to go hunting, to collect water, to migrate. You know, So we were constantly doing a, a high enough level of exercise that was forcing deep breathing. So if we move to the second physical need of the body based on time, like you can live without air for minutes, you can live without water for a day or two. But then after that, it starts becoming a real problem. So it's water is the next urgency. And again, people are like, oh yeah, but I'm drinking all the time. Yeah, but what are you drinking? Because you know what is not water? Coffee is not water. Milk is not water. Uh, you know, fruit juices from concentrate are not water. Coca-Cola is not water. And, and unfortunately, the vast majority of people in the, in the developed world are getting their water from those substances which are not water. I'm and, on and coconut so, water. Fresh. There you go. Directly from a coconut. That's the, tea, that's the ticket right there. Me too, right outside. And of course, not everybody has coconuts. And so they got to look at the best quality water they can get. My opinion about that, I don't care if you have your alkaline, Kangen, molecularly altered. You know what I want? I want fresh water, best I can. Glacial runoff, uh, spring water, mineral water. I want water the way Mother Nature intended as best possible. And then I want to make sure that I'm drinking six to eight glasses of that every single day. And I want to recognize that I, want, I never want to be thirsty because once you've gotten thirsty, it means you're, you were already dehydrated. It, we, we've got to make sure that we stay very hydrated. So again, we can evaluate this on a scale of one to 10. How well do you feel you're keeping yourself hydrated? Anybody listening, just do the math. Just, just give yourself a number. Where do you think you are? Are you drinking six to eight good glasses of water a day? Is it good quality water? You know, are, are, you, are you taking good care of that? If it's, again, anything less than an eight or nine, you have some practical steps you can take right now. Start drinking more water. I used to forget that now I actually just have a bottle next to my bed and I drink first thing in the morning when I wake up. I have water in front of me and it's something that I think a couple of years ago, someone just said to me, sometimes we forget to get water, especially people are stuck in the office or they're stuck in front of the computer a lot. My trick was have water in front of me and try to kind of take a break every 30 minutes to 45 minutes to take a few sips and finish the water, finish the glass, finish the glass, like go through it. Because if it wasn't in front of me, I would sometimes go a whole day and literally forget to go to the water cooler or something. Yeah. Convenience is a big deal and convenience can either be a killer or it can be the best way to have your health. It just depends on what you make convenient. So if, if you're in an office and there's a coffee machine, all of a sudden coffee is convenient. That's a problem. Whereas, and listen, I'm not super anti-coffee. I'm just saying that if you're using coffee as your source of water, that's not ideal. And so if you make water really convenient, like you have a bottle on your desk, or I have a water cooler in my bedroom. So when I wake up in the morning, I just go to the tap, got water, boom, right away. I have a big house. It'd be a long way to walk to the kitchen to get my morning water. And I don't like drinking the tap water here. So I've made it convenient. And I think that's key. Now, the next thing people are thinking, well, the next thing we got to talk about food, right? No, no. The next thing is sleep. Yes. Yeah. It's got to be sleep. And, and, and again, if you want any backup on this, just go ask the CIA. They'll tell you right now. You just deny somebody sleep for three days. They'll tell you, you don't need waterboarding. Just stop letting somebody sleep and they'll tell you everything. It's like your mind just goes mushy if you don't get enough sleep. 
And you can ask any mom about this. Many dads will not experience this the way moms often will when they're breastfeeding because they're being woken up every hour and a half and it can be quite, quite difficult and challenging. So what do we, we need to do? We need to make sure that we're getting some sleep. So first of all, on a scale of one to 10, how's your sleep right now? How do you feel about it? Okay, so if you're feeling anything less than an eight or nine, what are some steps you can take? Well, one is electronic devices off two hours before bedtime. Uh, set an alarm two hours before bedtime that says, hey, we're now in the run-up to go into bed. In nature, that would be called sunset. Like sunset your electronic devices. Just let them start to go off, you know, and, and, and give yourself some quiet time. Make sure that you're, you're, there are no lights in your room. I, when I travel, Gil, I'm going to give you a travel hack. I, I, I don't know if you know this one, but I, 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 I'm proud of it because I kind of invented it for me. Um, but you know, when you travel, they put those little barcode stickers all over your bags you know, the mm. little ones. Well, when I get to a hotel room, I just take those off my bags and I put them over the little light on the TV and I put them over the little light on the, on the, on the, uh, on the fire high, on the fire alarm. I don't want those lights on in my room. I want to sleep in darkness. And that's because it really helps you to uh, uh, produce good melatonin, which is going to help you sleep, which is also incredibly good for immune function. Sleep is imperative to your mental health and to your physical health. So taking those steps to make sure that you really sleep well changes everything uh, you asked me earlier that like, you need to go to sleep like before 12 o'clock or 11 o'clock or i know people who go to sleep like at nine o'clock even is there something that like based on wild fit and all of your education i know that seven hours of sleep is good for people our age but is there something a hack that we should know about sleeping where we can kind of we can work it you know, I, I think there are sleep personality types. I think that people have their own body clocks. And mm. I love the idea that every hour you get before midnight is worth two, but I don't think that that's true for everybody. And I mm. don't think everybody does need seven hours of sleep. Some people get by fine on six and some people need eight or nine. But I'll tell you what, you asked earlier, like what is one of the gifts that COVID gave me? It gave me a full and complete understanding of my sleep. Because for the first time I went for, for the first time in over 20 years, I went four months without changing time zones. I went four months without getting on a plane. I, I haven't done that in 20 plus years. And so all of us, and, 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 and on top of that, I wasn't like having to wake up for stuff all the time. So while I don't use alarms anyway, I, I, I went four months where I just slept as long as I needed to sleep with the odd occasional webinar at a funny hour. That was about it. And what I found is I am very happy most nights with six to six and a half hours sleep. And I like once a week to have a nice eight hour night. I just, you know, I just once a week, if I do that, it just keeps me going and that's optimal. I never, I don't, no alarms are being used. I go to sleep when I go to sleep, which is for me between nine and 1030. You know, that's, that's my window of sleep. Wow. And, and, and I, I, and then I'm, and then I'm up between 530 and 730. You know, that's, that's, that's my window depending on what I, and, and that's a lot that's, of sleep. That's impressive. I love it. It's optimal. But you know, I also wake up at two o'clock in the morning sometimes, and then I'm dumping ideas out of my journal. And so in the middle of the night, I might not have slept for an hour or two. But you know what? I've been out with the Hadza Bushmen many times over the last 10 years. These are hunter-gatherers living as the closest representation I can imagine to what our ancestors for millions of years lived like, or hundreds of thousands anyway. And you know what's really crazy? They go to bed, they go to sleep roughly around sundown. It's not light anymore. And they wake up just around the time the sun comes up, right? That's, that's their system, except one thing. They frequently wake up at two or three o'clock in the morning and talk for two hours. And it, it's just normal for them to do that. But you know what they also do? They frequently nap in the afternoons when the sun is at its highest point. 
So I'm and a big you, fan of yes, napping. I'm telling you, I think that the, the Spanish got it right with the siesta. Yep. Totally. Totally. All right. So sleep's highly, highly important. Now we can talk about one aspect of food, and that is energy. Now, most of us are not struggling to get enough energy from our food. Most of us are just getting shitty energy, and we've trained our bodies to burn the wrong kind of energy. And so what we really want to recognize is that we humans have two primary fuel sources. There's another one, but it doesn't really matter right now. We have two primary fuel sources, fat and sugar. And the best way I can put this to you is that fat is supposed to be like the gasoline in your tank, and sugar is supposed to be like the nitrous oxide. So anybody who's out there into race cars, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's like you've got the gasoline for the long drive, but you've got the nitrous oxide for getting away from the police. It's like, a, it's like the crack cocaine of your car. It snorts a line and boom, it goes. And that's how sugar's supposed to be. We're not supposed to live mostly on sugar and then, and then sometimes burn fat. Or for most of us living in the Western world, we just burn sugar all the time. We just burn sugar all the time, horrible for our immune system. Uh, all the, uh, there's tons of science now that says if it's really bad for your emotional state, really bad for your emotional state to live on carbohydrates. It, 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 you know, so what we wanna do is train our metabolism to be more fat burning and only burning sugar on an occasional basis. In other words, we would like our bodies to spend a fair bit of time in what they call ketosis, where, it, where we have ketones in our blood because we're burning fat on a regular basis. And one way to think of it is this. Uh, Gil, have you ever run a marathon? Not yet. All right. Uh, so, so here's how a marathon works. Uh, there are a lot of people that hit something called the wall at 17 miles. And the reason they hit that wall is that it takes about 2,000 calories to run a marathon, and you and I and human beings keep roughly 2,500 calories worth of blood sugar in our blood. So you go run the marathon, and you're in sugar burning mode, and at about mile 17, you've burned like 1,800 or 2,000 calories, and suddenly your body's going, holy crap, we're out. We're done. And, and they hit the wall, and they can't finish the marathon. And that's because once you've upregulated into sugar burning, it's hard to downregulate back to fat burning. It's just hard to do that. It, it, it just, it, you run out, your body runs out, and your body will not let you do anything else because it's like, holy crap, I got to keep some sugar for the brain, man. I, gotta, I, can't, I can't burn it all. And so you hit the wall. Now, if you switch your metabolism to a proper fat burning metabolism, you can run that marathon easily. And then you can run another one the next day, assuming you were in a good enough physical condition. I'm, you know, I'm just saying from an energy perspective, if you meet any of these guys who have done ultra marathons, I'm telling you now, it's because they've converted to a fat burning metabolism and that gives them inexhaustible energy. I am 50 years old and I can tell you that the, last, the second last visit that I had with the Hadza Bushman, so I'd have been 47, 48, when that, the third last visit I should say, Chief woke me up one morning. I was staying with them for a full week. I don't bring food. I just live with them. And he says, do you want to go hunting? And I'm like, yeah, let's go. I'd been hunting with them many times, but generally just a quick morning hunt or an evening hunt. This was going to be an all-day hunt. I didn't know what I was in for. I carried my phone with me. Not that there's any signal out there, but I could use the GPS tracking for the for distance, right? And that day, we did 27 miles, which is a marathon. It's one mile past a marathon. And it was also probably, probably 50 degrees outside. It's, it's you know, East Africa. Um, it was phenomenally difficult. It was not a running track. 
It was thorn trees and rocks and cliffs. It was, it was, it was tough as anything. And then the next day, the chief's like, do you want to go again? And we went again and we did 17 more miles the next day. I was 47 years old. I don't think the average 27 year old could do that these days, but that's largely because they're mostly burning sugar. So we really, if we want to stabilize our moods, if we want to stabilize our hormones, if we want to have our optimal immune function, we want to move to a fat burning metabolism. I love the importance of that. You know, I, I, I haven't done a marathon, but I did, you know, walk up the highest volcano in Bali a few weeks ago. And that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. And the, uh, the guy that actually comes to my house and kicks my ass a few times a week, he actually helped us walk up that mountain and, and having the right kind of snacks and the right amount of water was important to be able to get us up there. So, um, you know, the, the sleeping part, the breathing part, the eating part, this is all has a massive effect on our bodies, has a massive effect on how do we, we interact with people, our attitudes, I know that from your past experience, and you've also gone from industry to industry, you moved around, super businessman, Hollywood company stuff. Now you're working with experts and speakers and like incredible things. How do you help entrepreneurs understand the immediate connection between health and the actual business health? You know, I, 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 I hope that it only requires light explanation because it's very simple. The more energy you have, the more consistent your energy, the less often you're sick, the more successful you're going to be in business. The, the better your health, the better your cognition. The better your health, the better your memory. The better your health, the better your creativity. In every way, I mean, Gil, it's this simple. Uh, how do you convince somebody who's going on a long drive that they better do maintenance on the car before they go for the long drive? It's, mm -hmm. it's the same question. You're going on a long drive, check the tire pressure, make sure there's gas in the tank, check the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the antifreeze levels and the, uh, and the transmission fluid. Make sure the car is in good shape. The better shape the car's in, the more likely you're gonna be successful on the journey. Well, the difference here is if you abuse your car, you can go get another one. Your body, it's not like that. And so your success, my success, anybody's success at any endeavor, whether they want to be a professional tennis player or they want to be a top entrepreneur or they want to be an ass-kickingly good politician or they want to be a, anything, their success is going to be directly related to the level of energy they have in their life. And that's going to be directly related to their health. Nice. It yeah, is, like honestly, whenever I see like a business growth program, if you go do a business growth program, you know, like entrepreneur growth, we're going to teach you how to scale your business and da, da, da. If they don't talk about food, don't do the program. It's the first thing. The first thing as a business owner is to have your health right. That's it. Hmm. It, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I remember, you know, about 10 years ago when I started like doing very active coaching of different startups. One of the first thing I did when I went to the office, I was like, show me what kind of snacks you guys have on your tables. You know, if you're running a startup, you want to be smart and creative. As you said, you want to be innovative. Instead of having shitty snacks on the table, have something healthy, something that gets your brain going. So I love that. And especially now, again, during COVID, I think that snacking on things and what we eat is truly how, how and who we are uh, to everyone around us. Now, you're, you're someone that compared to a lot of people that I know, you do a lot. Like you really, you're, you're, you're a machine and like when it comes to business, but you're also an incredible human being who's spending time with his family. I know how much you, 
how, what sort of a family man you, you are and how resourceful you are to the world. So tell me, where is that balance for Eric? How do you find that energy within you to be resourceful to others while doing so many different things in your life? Um, th th there's a few answers. I mean, one we've already talked about, and that is uh, just, you know, taking care of your relationship with food. Uh, honestly, if you're tired at three o'clock in the afternoon, what kind of father can you be? What kind of CEO can you be? What kind of husband can you be? What kind of friend can you be? Right. You know, if, 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 mm -hmm. if you're, if, if you're, if your energy is lacking because of your relationship with food, that's going to have, it's going to have consequences and those consequences are going to compound over years. So that's really the first thing. And then for me, the next thing is, is that it's funny, you say, I, I do a whole lot. And what's interesting is I don't think of myself that way, right? Like, uh, you know, our mutual friend, Carl uh, Pearsall from London. Well, you know, in about 19, uh, I want to say 98 or 99, he and I met because I was publishing an internet magazine on personal development. It was like the first of its kind on the internet. And he advertised his yes group in my, in my magazine. And so he and I became friends. And one day, years later, he came up to me and he's like, well, Eric, how do you, uh, how do you do so much? You're traveling, you've got a family, you've started a business, you're, you're, you do so much. It's like you have more time in the day than I have. Hmm. And, and I said, no, I don't feel like I have more time in the day. I'm pretty sure that the way physics works is we get the same amount. But we started talking about it. And one of the things that we determined was is that I did have a system. And, and one of my systems was that every year I would take two days in about November. And I would, instead of setting New Year's resolutions on December 31st, I would in November do a workshop with myself that would evaluate the last year, take a look at what really worked, take a look at what could have been better. Then I would create a launch plan for the year ahead. You see, most people think that they're going to set a bunch of New Year's resolutions on December 31st and change their life on January 1st. Well, it doesn't work that way. You got to train for the result you want. And so I would enter from about mid-November through December, I would enter my training period for the year coming. So any habits that I wanted to have in the year coming up, I would start trying to install them in mid-November so that I would hit January 1st with the skills and assets already under development. And so that, that's been a habit of mine for a long time. In fact, we have a program called Azea where we teach that to people. We, we take them through it as like a proper program. Every year they can go through that, set their targets. The clearer, and you know this, the clearer you are about your passion and your outcome, the harder it is to distract you. The harder it is for Netflix to pull you away. The harder it is for junk to get in the way. Now, that said, I enjoy Netflix from time to time. But one of the other rules that I have about this, and I think this is this could be big, what's coming up. What I'm about to say could be really big for a lot of people. But that is that whatever you reward your body for, it will continue to do. So if you reward your body for depression, your body will continue to do depression. A good example of this is that if somebody is like feeling quite depressed, they're feeling quite sad, maybe it's not chronic depression, but it's a moment in time. And then they go, well, you know, I know what helps with depression. I know exactly what helps with ice cream. Ice cream helps for depression. And so then what happens is they eat that ice cream and you know what's really crazy is, is that even before they put the ice cream in their mouth, the depression starts to lift because they've started releasing rebellious endorphins. Basically, oh, I'm going to do something bad. And they start to feel like, you know, they start to feel good. Then they eat the ice cream and they slam themselves with phenomenal levels of calories and fat and all this stuff. And their body goes, wow, this is awesome. How did we do this? How did we create this? And your whole body goes, oh, it was the depression. All right, mental note. Depression leads to ice cream. 
And so your body will continue to create those habits. And the same is true. If you have a really, really tough day at work and you're feeling a little depressed, and then you come home and you watch super high adrenalizing, super high emotional rewarding uh, Netflix, then you're using Netflix as an anesthetic as a drug, then your body starts to learn, wow, if we want, if we are, if we want to have a good Netflix night, all we got to do is have a shitty day at work. And so my policy with those things is you, we can have those things in our lives, but we should only give ourselves those things when we've had the best possible result or we've turned our state around. So if I've oh, had a God. really, really rough day, I love ice cream and it's exactly, I think I, I heard it from you in the past somewhere because I'm almost, almost like I've heard it the second time. Whenever I close a client, I get my full ice cream tub. I love ice cream. Yeah, there you go. Now, Gil, all I would say to you is I'd like you to go out and find like a, a dairy-free ice cream that isn't going to mess up your immune system uh, and, and one that's not in made Obud, with refined- we got it right here in Bali. There you go. Dairy-free, sugar-free. Awesome. Then we're super in. healthy. I'm having it when I come for my next visit. Nice. I love it. That's so cool. So, Eric, you've been through some, some cool transitions in your life. Like, you've really moved industries. People who are listening are saying, well- this guy has transitioned a lot. You've transitioned in business. You've transitioned in countries. You've transitioned in health. You've told us about, you know, your story of transitioning. What can you share with people out there who are currently going through this crazy transitions in their life? What sort of life hacks or specific steps, whether it's health, whether it's business, whether it's countries, what's Eric's way of transitioning? Okay. This is, again, this is one of those things. Everybody, if you've been passively listening for this part, like just tune in with me for a second. I believe I'm about to share something possibly life-changing. So here's first of all, the metaphor. Gil, if you and I are here at my house and I have a line that's painted down the, down the, down the, hall, down the floor, and I ask you to walk like the 20 feet down this line, you're gonna walk down that line normally. You're just gonna walk down the line. It's just the line. It's like, just walk down the line. But then if I take that line and I lift it up by two, by, by say half a meter. So now it's like a balance beam. Now you got to walk down that line like it's a balance beam. Are you going to walk the same way that you were walking earlier? Probably not. I'm going to try. No, to you're probably a little slower, a little wobblier, right? You know, a little bit, just making sure. And then what if I raise it to three meters? How are you gonna walk across it now? Again, adjust better. Get You're gonna go somehow. more slowly, more cautiously. And then if I take that up to 30 meters, you're gonna be hugging it going, I can't do it, man, it's just too scary. Now, here's what's really crazy. Everything that we just said about that is true, even if you're wearing a safety harness. Because you see, our nervous system looks at the environment, smells the environment, tastes the environment, hears the environment, and it makes decisions about how safe we are. So when you're standing up there on that balance beam and you have a safety line on, your body doesn't, it just looks down. That's why we have the whole expression, don't look down. Why not look down? Because no matter how much you know you're safe, you can be at the top of the Sears Tower in Chicago, walk out onto one of the glass floors they have up there and look straight down to the sidewalk and your nervous system will freak out and you're totally safe. So what we wanna do is we wanna stop the whole idea of don't look down. We wanna be willing to look down because we've so tested, 
we've so developed faith in the, in the, in the, in the safety line that it's okay to look down. And so here's, here's, here's a practical, what I'm, what I'm saying here. Practically speaking, I went to one of these gyms where they have like balance beams raised up into the ceiling, like American Ninja Warrior type stuff, right? And, and, and you walk across, they put a safety line on you and you're walking along and you got to try and get, you know, one is one beam, then there's two beams, then there's little discs, then there's the parallel beam. It's, you know, so I'm walking across this thing and I'm, I'm walking like this. And then I suddenly think, wait a second. I have a safety line on. Why am I walking like this? And I go, well, let's test the safety line. So I sit down into the harness and I go, it's got me. It's totally got me. So I walk across the next one like it's a sidewalk. And then I walk across the next one like it's a sidewalk. And I walk across the next one like it's a sidewalk. And I get to the end of the whole course and there's a kid there. He's the safety officer. He's some 14-year-old coke-sipping acne-faced kid who's the safety officer, right? And he goes, he goes, wow, dude, you must come here like all the time. I've never been here before in my life. And he goes, yeah, but you must come to these kind of assault courses and balance beams or all the time. No, I've actually not been on a balance beam probably since I was, you know, 12. I don't know. And he's like, yeah, but, but you walk across it like a normal person walking on the sidewalk. And I go, why shouldn't I? And he goes, cause it's 30 feet in the air. And I go, you're the safety officer, right? And he's like, yeah. And I go, do the safety lines work? Yeah. I go, so why do I need to walk around like I'm terrified? And he's like, oh, that's a really good point. So let me put this in practical terms. As you go through transition, it will feel as though the balance beam is being lifted higher and your nervous system will get engaged at that point. And if you allow it to, it'll override your natural behavior and you will start acting like an afraid person. You will start acting fearful and that will affect the way you see the world and it'll affect the decisions you make and it'll affect the type of attraction you create. And so what your goal is, in my opinion, is to make a transition from one balance beam to the other, knowing that ultimately you have faith in yourself, you have faith in God, you have faith in the universe, wherever you place your faith, that that safety line is there for you, that everything is happening for you, not to you, especially when it seems like it isn't. And if you can do that, and you can walk across any balance beam at any height, then people will follow you. And then life changes. I love it. It's cool with this line. Wow. I, uh, yeah, I'm actually afraid of going on such things. I'm not good with heights in, in general. Um, and I always get butterflies, not just in my stomach, but in my feet. Um, Eric, I'm, I'm curious. You're, you're someone I know in the eyes of, um, of many is a, a successful person. Um, how do you define success? I, I you know what, the, the very first thing I ever wrote that got published, like uh, it was the weirdest thing, but I, I was traveling around the world 20 years ago, 17 years ago, and I met this woman and she was a travel agent in Hong Kong and her Skype status said this, the only true measure of success in life is the number of days that you're really happy. And I was like, holy crap, where did you get that from? And she pulled it out of a magazine that I'd written it in and published in 1997 or 1996. And that was my definition of success then and it remains my definition of success today. The only true measure of success in life is the number of days that you're really happy. That's pretty cool and simple. Well, I feel very, very successful. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's you, know, you and I both know people that have phenomenal amounts of money and are not happy. We both do, you know, mm -hmm. and we both know people that don't have a lot of, matter of fact, you're in Bali. Like I have a really good friend in Bali. I, I've known him. I met him on Gili Trawangan 15, 16 years ago. I, I, I saw him in Bali the last time I was there last year. He doesn't have any money. He's happy. You know, like it doesn't, like it's, it's tough to, to say this because everybody's like, well, you know, you can stand up in front of an audience and go, how many of you know you can't buy happiness? How many of you know money doesn't equal happiness? Everybody, they go, but how many of you still want more money? Everybody. Well, what do they think it's going to give them? And I think that what we recognize, what I've recognized is the more consistently I'm happy in my life, the easier it is for me to be successful in business. So it's the other way around. Happiness creates money more likely than, than, than money creating happiness. Hmm. That's so beautiful. As, as someone who's constantly adding value, um, you, you are part of different networks, you're part of different masterminds. Uh, for people out there who are just now developing that network around them, they're, they're learning about adding value to others. They're learning about some ways of finding happiness is just being valuable and being able to serve people around you, being in the right sort of company, the right mastermind. Where does that come into your life? Where do masterminds, for example, come into your life? Um, as, a young, as a young sort of early entrepreneur, I, of course, read uh, Napoleon Hill's uh, Think and Grow Rich. And I really liked the way he talked about masterminds and um, you know, talked about how masterminds can be used to uh, problem solve at a level very different than any of us would normally use. And so ever since I read about that, I have recognized uh, two types of masterminds in my life. Um, one is in-person masterminds, whether it's Skype or in-person or what have you, but just gathering together around me, the people that are of the highest quality in the given area that I'm trying to um, work on or improve and spending time with those people, either formally in a formal mastermind environment or casually just by simply being around them and learning through the osmosis and activating my mirror neurons and so forth. And then I've always had another kind of mastermind and that is my theoretical masterminds. And so for many years, uh, I've been doing these um, sort of mastermind meditations where I go, I, I have, a, I have a, um, a construct in my imagination of this big house that I built years ago. And, and one of the rooms in the house is my mastermind room. And it's a gorgeous room with oak panels and beautiful chairs, like a big boardroom. And I populate that with the people that need to be there to help me with a given problem. And sometimes I've never even met those people or I've met them, but they're not official. Like for example, I've met Richard Branson a number of times and I've been lucky enough to sit and have breakfast with him once and just kind of chat with him. But I wouldn't, I, I've never been in a mastermind with him, but that doesn't stop me from putting him in the room. And, and I've put Warren Buffett in the room and I've put, you know, and, and what's really interesting is I've sat there and, 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 and handled problems that I needed to deal with and received feedback from my imaginary mastermind people. And it's been really good feedback. And one time, and this is a bit creepy, but one time there was a guy who was in my imaginary mastermind, but he was also uh, a, a real person in my life that I often did get help from, but I, but I hadn't spoken to him for probably a year or two. And I put him in my imaginary mastermind room and I had a really serious situation. And, I, and he came back with an answer for me in my imagination. What would he say? And um, crazy enough, about two months later, I, I told him about the problem and he gave me the same answer. 
Hmm. And so, you know, I have found that if you know those people, either because you've read their books or because you've studied them or because you know them, you, you, you can often tap into their intelligence right inside your own mind. So I, I really enjoy having both that, uh, say, call it a spiritual mastermind, and then also my physical masterminds. And in that case, I have many of them. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a member of Metal, which is a men's group, which is awesome. My, my favorite mastermind is no longer active anymore, but I was in a group called the Men of Marin, which was... You know, uh, I was in that group with John Gray, who wrote the Mars Venus books, and and Stuart Emery, who was the CEO of Est Training all through the 70s. Like these were the grandfathers of personal development, and I I met with them every week, and boy did I learn some stuff. And you know what was really cool for me in that one, Gil, is their average age was at that stage their average age was about 65, and my age at that point was 45. That, you're talking two decades of wisdom that every one of those guys brought to the room that I got to tap into. I I love that in masterminds. I want. I want a mastermind that has people in it that are excelling far beyond me in many of the areas that I'm aiming for. But I also want people in it that are on the journey with me because I want to be in a position where I can both receive and learn and grow and then also teach and learn and grow. Hmm. That's so cool. So, you know, I've been in the world of masterminds for so many years and being able to, to set up these networks in these communities and organize these networks around the world, I've never once heard anyone talk about an imaginary mastermind. So if you don't mind, I'm going to be using that one this week because I'd like to learn how to set up my own imaginary mastermind. However, I will say to everyone who's listening, you also need a real mastermind in your life to actually get things moving. But an imaginary one is really, really cool. I'm going to say this on my program. If you buy one of our masterminds in the future, you get an imaginary one free of charge and you can choose who you have on it. Wow. You heard it from Eric, the man himself. Eric, that's awesome. Eric, if our listeners, again, either live or not live, want to somehow uh, be useful to you. One of my biggest you know, um, wishes in life is to teach people how to be useful to others at any level of society. You met Richard Branson. I remember when I met him, I had to learn how I could be useful to him within the first one minute that I met him. And I did that. And I actually managed to get his business card at the end of two minutes. And that was a very, very powerful interaction we had with him. And when he came to Moscow, how can people are listening be useful to you, Eric? Um, You know, I I think I, I do get people writing to me frequently on social media asking how they can help. And I'll tell you where most of them, in my opinion, kind of go wrong. It's they, they, they write to me and go, how can I help you? And what I would suggest is that probably some of the challenges and problems and things that I'm facing out there in the world, there are people who have phenomenal solutions to them and I haven't even thought of them yet. And, and so what really intrigues me is when somebody comes along and they've actually like, for example, I had somebody come along and look at my Instagram account and they said, oh no, actually a better example was LinkedIn. Somebody came and looked at my LinkedIn account and, and, and she wrote me on social media and she says, can I have 30 minutes of your time? I, I think there's a few things I can teach you about your LinkedIn page that will change everything. And so she spotted the need and came and approached that. And well, since then I've engaged her to speak. She's done, you know, she's, she's done masterminds for our people. Like, you know, she solved a problem for me. And so I, what I want to suggest is that uh, if you, is is that if somebody like what you did with Richard, I've done very similar things in my life. I see somebody out there and I'm like, wow, boy, I would love to be able to serve that person one day because I want to be valuable to them because I want to be in their circle. Right. And so I'm asking myself, what can I do? The very first time I went to the Transformational Leadership Council, which is a, 
uh, private mastermind that Jack Canfield created for speakers and authors around the world. And it's, it's some of the, it's, it's where they shot the vast majority of the movie, The Secret. It's, it's a very good collection of interesting people. And the very first time I was invited to speak there, I was like, wow, I, I'd love to connect with, I have three days. Like, I'd love to connect with all these people, but how can I do that? And I immediately said, well, what's one of the things that I can provide a value to everybody? We were going on a rafting trip and I had a waterproof camera. So I'm like, I'm going to just take millions of pictures of everybody and I'm going to just give them to everybody as, as if, you know, just there it is. And that's going to be a tiny little bit of value, but they're going to remember that I did that for them. And so I'm always looking at that. So when people, when people ask, you know, look, what are some of the things that I'm interested in at the moment? I'll tell you, one of the things that I'm concerned about even is that we have literally hundreds, if not thousands of incredible health recovery stories, type two diabetes reversals, uh, uh, massive weight loss, inflammation, medicine that people no longer have, surgeries that have been avoided. We have tons of them. And you know what we're not good at? We're not good at PR. Like I can't believe that we're not in every regional newspaper, especially in the days of COVID and all this kind of stuff. So I definitely am looking for help in that space of how do we get our stories out to the world in an even better way than we currently do. But generally speaking, if people, want to reach out. Like I manage my own Instagram. It's the best place to reach me. It's me that answers personally. And, and in my opinion, the best way to do that is, Hey, if you're curious about the work we do and you're interested in, in what's happening, you come and say, Hey, here's what I've got. Here's here, 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 here's how I might be able to support you. And those messages always get more mileage from me than somebody who's asking me to use my creativity to figure out how they can help me. Hmm. Beautiful. And if someone right now still for some crazy reason hasn't understood how they can follow you or connect with you where are those best places of people to connect with you eric well you know naturally i'm on i'm on facebook and i've got a, a facebook page that you can find me on just my name eric edmeads you know I, I i'm very easy to find that way uh or facebook.com slash eric edmeads but really instagram is my my little guilty pleasure i manage my own instagram my team they, they keep asking for it but no and uh, so, you know, check, following me on Instagram, and I actually do respond to people when they write to me there. And then if you've got one of these three particular problems, like, or, or challenges, if you, if you want to reevaluate your relationship with food, if you want to gain what we call food freedom, where you can eat whatever you want, whenever you want, and feel good about it, but equally not eat what you wish you wouldn't want, then go to getwildfit.com, because we've got a great 14-day challenge that you can check out that will change your thinking about food. If you are in business, and you want to develop a company that's a real asset that you want to like become a, uh, you want to build a company that look, here's the difference. Do you want to be self-employed or do you want to be a business owner? If you want to be a business owner, then check out businessfreedom.com because we teach people how to build businesses that give them total freedom in their lives. And then lastly, and this is maybe one of the biggest gifts I could ever give you is if you have a message, if you have something you want to get out to the world, if you want to improve your level of influence, there's nothing more powerful in the world for doing that than public speaking, except most of us are either afraid of it or incompetent at it or both. And so if you want to become comfortable and competent at public speaking, then go to speakernation.com and we can help you there. Wow, that's beautiful. Well, Eric, you're definitely full of love. You have a lot of good golden nuggets that you've given us today. You've also very, very clearly helped people understand how they can follow up with you and how they can do more and collaborate with you. And ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here on the Collective Genius Code podcast that you can connect with Eric on Instagram and he will answer himself. So if you do connect with him, tell him exactly where you heard this information. Eric, thank you so, so much for being with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to be with you live everywhere that we are right now and on the podcast itself.
everyone else, thanks a lot. Tune in next time. We'll connect soon.